Uh, we've been talking about how to talk to kids about various topics, and today we arrive at the subject of baptism, which is uh, an extension of last week's topic of how to talk about the gospel. And I do those in that order for a reason. If you kind of get a sense of where your kids are relative to the story of the gospel, then thinking about how to talk to them about baptism is going to line up pretty well. And I think, I think it's important to keep that in mind, that uh, I guess I would say it like this. They're not any more prepared for baptism than they are for the gospel. Does that make sense? Like you can't, one can't get ahead of the other. So if you're still having trouble communicating the idea of death to a child, what are we talking about baptism for? Like, don't, don't do that. They can do it, right? I mean, the action itself is not particularly complicated. Preacher does all the work. You just put them under, pull them back up. Right? But in terms of does this mean anything to you, um, pretty good guideline is going to be can they make any sense of the gospel? If not, then I'm going to start there. I'm not going to talk about baptism yet. Uh, and that's the short version of what we'll say today. Um, in terms of kind of talking about it, Last week we said, you know, when you're talking about the cross, you might think uh, older kids were going to show the passion of the Christ, and it's bloody and awful and terrible and, and also communicates the story. For younger children, you know, you might show them that scene where the lion dies in Chronicle of Narnia and hope they get it. For even younger children, you don't even talk about it. Right? I mean, you, you talk about Jesus fed people fish and bread and walked on water, and that you don't get to the death very much with very, very little children because they wouldn't get it anyway. And so what I'm saying is basically... Same timeline for a conversation about baptism. If you can have a serious conversation about crucifixion, you can have a serious conversation about baptism. If you're only talking vaguely about crucifixion, you're probably only talking vaguely about baptism. If you're not talking about it at all, then you're probably not talking about it at all. And that's those timelines to me line up pretty well. Um, when you do get to talk about it, what are we trying to say? Um, we want to say that baptism is a symbol, that is, it, it represents something. It tells the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Right? So we talked about this story. Baptism is how we tell that story. Okay? Uh, I'll have more to say about that in a future lesson, actually, because when we talk about uh, a lot of the things the church does, communion being a good example, are ways of telling a story. And baptism falls into that category. Um, when a person is baptized, they'll confess Jesus Christ. They'll say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Traditionally, those are done at you know, more or less the same time, so we always ask. Um, in churches of Christ, we practice uh, baptism by immersion, and there's, there's good reason for that. Today is not going to be a, a sermon on a water immersion baptism, but suffice it to say there's good reason um, from the Greek language point of view, there's just nothing to be said for sprinkling. Um, it starts out in the, the Didache at the end of the first century, but it was offered as an exception clause. Like, if, if you had someone who was dying and literally could not get them to water, there's a church manual from the end of the first century that says, I guess you can sprinkle them. And somehow that became normal instead of, I don't know, do what you can. <laughs> so it's... Uh, to me, don't, don't make an exception from an exceptional text uh, normal. Normal is what's normal, right? And immersion is the, the norm of the New Testament. So we cover them in water completely. Um, this is the way we do it. Why do we do it? I'll come to that in the next slide. 
the result of baptism. A couple things we want to say. You're going to begin a new life, participate as a member of the church. Uh, I want to talk about having responsibility, uh, imitating Jesus, and forgiveness of sins, obviously. I'd be in that list somewhere or that's com- connected to the gospel story. Those are all phrases that we're trying to use. I emphasize participate as a member of the church because I think that's one that we miss. When you make baptism an entirely private event where this is the thing I do to be forgiven of my sins, then you kind of miss the fact that at least normally it's done with a church, with other people who have done the same thing. And it's a way to connect to this group of people. And I want my kids to feel connected to a group of people when they're baptized. Um, Yes, there is a reason that we decided to move the, the water trough down front for baptisms and make it like right there in front of you because we want it to be as participatory as possible, like a church camp baptism where everyone's hugging each other and everybody gets wet and everyone sings and everyone says amen. You, know, you want everybody to feel like, okay, I participated in this. I didn't just watch someone do something. And I don't know if it always accomplishes that, but that was kind of the hope of connecting the people in the row to the people in the water um, is a goal. We want to communicate that. What are the reasons for baptism? Um, the Bible presents a variety of reasons for being baptized. All of them are true. Your child may connect with one more than others. So I, I don't necessarily harp on one phrase and say, you've got to get this phrase right. Um, we're baptized to obey because you know, the Bible says do it, so we do it. And that, it, it could be that simple. God said, jump up and down, jump up and down. Yeah, it's something you do because God said to do it. That's a perfectly legitimate reason uh, to belong to a church family. These, this is what these people do, so this is what I did. That's a perfectly valid reason, something the Bible teaches, to be forgiven, or as we say, the remission of sins. Again, perfectly valid reason, makes sense. The Bible says it, it's true, to begin a new life. Um, I was quizzing somebody one time, because you know, that's what preachers do. You want to be baptized, and I said, well, why do you want to be baptized? I nearly ask everybody that, just because it's always interesting to ask. And sometimes, young or old, you get interesting answers. And one person said, to imitate Jesus Christ, because he was baptized. And I was ready to say, well, that's not the reason. And I thought, well, that's a really good reason. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> everything else we do because we imitate Christ. Christ was baptized, so I want to do what Christ did. It's like, yeah, okay, good reason. I like it. It's not the only reason. It, it's one of them. So your kid, which one are they going to connect to and say, yep, that's the thing I want to do. I don't know. They're all true. As long as it's a true reason, go for it. Only, there's probably been three or four times in my life I've turned somebody down from baptism, which is a rare thing. Um, one was at a church camp, and the young lady says, well, I want to be baptized. And I said, okay, great. Why do you want to be baptized? And again, remember, this is a guy who accepts basically every answer. <laughs> and she says, because I always want to be baptized at camp. I said, well, that, that's where you want to be baptized. Why do you want to be baptized? Well, because I've always wanted to be baptized at camp. And I said, okay, can you give me anything else? Like, and again, this is, this is the guy who's, he will accept any answer on the quiz. Like, any, can you think of any other reason you can give me besides you want to do it here? And, I'll, and I'll, I'll do it. And she had nothing. And I said, okay, tell you what, go back to the dorm, pray about it, think about it. We'll see you tomorrow. It's like Tuesday. And I'd ask her every day that week. She never got any further than, I really want to do it at camp. I never felt like I could do it. I was like, that's, I need a little more for me. And I would even talk to her 
and say, you know, here's the gospel, and I'd have counselors talk to her, and, and, they're, and they're like, okay, what do you think, sweetheart? Well, I really want to be baptized at camp. Okay, let's try again next year, maybe. <laughs> Let that one marinate a little bit. I mean, I don't want to put you off or discourage you, but just maybe think about that a little harder. Um, one other guy wanted to be baptized. This was an adult. Showed up at our church on a Wednesday night. He said, yeah, I want to be baptized. I said, okay. He said, I went to another church, and uh, they, they acted like I didn't know what I was doing, so they wouldn't do it. I was like, well, this is a good start. <laughs> and he says, you know, I, I really want to do it. I said, I said uh, why, do you, why do you want to do it? Why do you want to be baptized? He said, I, just, I feel like I need to re-enlist, you know, just something good to do. And I said, I don't, I don't even know what that means. I said, would you like to maybe, look, I, I'm a minister here, i got free time. Let's do like a Bible, you and me sit down tonight or tomorrow night, whatever evening for you this week, let's talk about it. And he goes, oh, no, I'm in a hurry, I need to do it. And he left and went down to the next church and found one that would do it. And I just kind of felt like, yeah, I, don't, I'm, I don't judge the church that said yes. I don't judge me for saying no. I'm just like, that, I feel like if you don't have time to talk just a little bit about what this means, I view it the same way I do a wedding. Because I ask people the same question. Literally, in premarital counseling, one of the questions I ask, one of the first questions, why do you want to get married? And if they say, well, because I've always wanted to get married at a church, I'm going to say, find somebody else. That's a terrible reason. <laughs> like, it can't be because I think I would look good in a white dress. Like, that can't be your reason. That was mine. It's a <laughs> You're making a pretty long-term connection, a commitment here. I just need a, I don't need a biblical doctrine. I don't need a sermon. I just need a hint that you've Maybe thought further ahead. Save your marriage. Yeah. 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 I just need a little more from yeah. you. Um, where we really get into it, especially in Churches of Christ, and where I get the most questions from parents is about how old a kid should be when he's baptized. And... The first sentence on the screen is the most important one you'll hear me say today. There is no clear age threshold for baptism, but. <laughs> okay. So you can study your Bible cover to cover, and you're not going to find the verse that says, and here's how that works. It is, even the phrase that we often use, age of accountability, uh, is an entirely man-made phrase. Like, that's not, you can't find, not only can you not find a verse that tells you what the age of accountability is, you can't find the phrase age of accountability in your Bible. So again, it's something we use to try to communicate an idea. That's an important idea. It's just something that you're not going to get a cut and dry answer. So of all the lessons we've done in this class, more than any others, this is my disclaimer, please know that a fair bit of this has been speculative information. As a guy who's done a lot of baptisms, this, this is my two cents. Um, in Churches of Christ, we have said, and, and we're not the only ones, we practice what's called credo-baptism also known as believer's baptism, meaning that baptism is based on present faith and confession. Okay. I have a book in my office written by Thomas Schreiner from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. title of the book is Believer's Baptism. Church of Christ gets a whole chapter in it. He's like, yeah, they're right about that one. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, belief and baptism are supposed to go together, and it's, it's a big deal. Uh, the alternative is pedo-baptism, uh, which pedo is Greek for infant or child, and they kind of reverse the order. They say, you're baptized now, you'll believe later. Okay? That makes the, the practice simpler. I don't have, you don't have to know anything. I don't have to worry at all if you know what you're doing. Um, it's kind of the equivalent, again, for my wedding metaphor, it's like an arranged marriage. I picked your spouse for you at two. 
good luck with that, right? And again, try not to be too judgy, but it doesn't seem like the way it's described in the Bible. In the Bible, faith and baptism go together. So we then, because that's our doctrine, and I think we're right, because that's our doctrine, now we have a problem that an infant baptism church wouldn't have, which is, how do I know you have faith if faith and baptism are supposed to go together? How do I even know you're capable of faith? Uh, maybe I could ask you a question or give you a quiz, right? But again, that's, that's where the, the scripture runs out of information for us, and we're left to ponder it. So, today, for a few minutes, and it may take two lessons, we're going to take a little excursion into the world of early childhood development. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which, again, not entirely a biblical field, but every culture on the planet recognizes the reality that there's a difference between kids and adults. Think about that. Of all the, all the different cultures in the world, all the different ways people do things, there is no culture that ignores this distinction between child and adult. There'll be even disagreements about how it plays out and the details, but there's a fact that a child and adult are fundamentally different. Okay. So, okay. Oop, don't do that. That was cool. Um, I like to show people my biases before we get started. I was a camp director for 15 years. I've been a minister for nearly 22 years, which means I've baptized a lot of kids and had like every experience you can imagine with kids that like some of them it sounded like they were knew more than the adults that I knew, and some that I thought, oh, what have I done? Um, I've baptized some adults who regretted being baptized so young, and I've known some adults who had no problem with it whatsoever. I myself was rebaptized at a as an adult because it, it bugged me. Um, I don't know if it was good or bad, but that particular night I was bothered by it, and I was baptized in a horse trough at midnight at Frogger Christian Camp, Craig. Uh, uh, Scott Elliott uh, baptized me in the dead of night. And I kept it secret because I didn't want anyone to go home and say, hey, the director was baptized. That would be a weird conversation. Oh, the, the director's a Christian now. That's great. No, I, it just it's something that bugged me. I wanted it done and did it. Um, I've not yet baptized my own son, though we are talking about it more now than we have in the past. He just turned 13, and it comes up from time to time. So all I'm saying is everything I'm about to give you is very personal advice based on my own experience and biases. You've got your own. And of all the things, as I say, in this, of this class, this is the most hit or miss in terms of is there any biblical support. I taught this lesson at uh, Glenpool when I did this class series there. And at the very end, one of the young mothers said, all right, now prove that to me from the Bible. And I said, no, I can't. That's the point. Like none of this is there. Uh, and and that's, that's the point. Okay. Um, the first problem we have, when, why, why isn't it covered in the Bible? All the examples of baptism in the Bible are in a mission field. An adult preacher goes to an adult who has never heard the gospel, tells them the gospel, and that adult responds. Okay? That's everything. That's the whole book of Acts. At no point in the book of Acts do you see, and then this church was there 40 years, and the deacon's kid wanted to be baptized. Right? It's all mission field stuff, and it's all adults. Um, the only thing we have to kind of hint at what was normal is this book I've mentioned a few times. It's called the Didache. It's a church manual, not from God. It's just church people wrote down, here's what we do. Towards the end of the first century, early second century, it's in Greek. And it talks about, I mean, it, it, does, it covers everything. It covers what temperature the water should be when you baptize them. I mean, it's really like a church manual somebody would write. 
And in it, it talks about before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can. You can order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Like for them, like they slowed down. For these established churches, instead of here, see here is water, like in Acts chapter 8, the eunuch's driving along. He's like, there's water, let's do it. Mission-filled baptism. In these established churches, they slowed down a little bit and said, let's think about this. Let's fast for a few days. Let's pray about it. And then, again, more like you would a wedding as opposed to, sorry for the comparison, as opposed to uh, eloping. <laughs> right? It's more like, okay, let's sit down and plan this and get some counseling. And they, and they did. They, they tended to slow down. So as churches settled into normacy, baptism was approached more deliberately and slowly. Um, in every culture that I know of, past and present, adulthood is reached in stages. You don't get there all at once. With rites of passage or recognition delineating those stages, thresholds are often arbitrary and may not recognize an individual child's intellectual, spiritual, social, and moral development because we all develop at our own pace. Um, my kids are very smart, but that doesn't mean they are socially any further ahead. So when we do parent-teacher conference, all the teacher wants to tell us is how good Calvin reads. And we say, great, we don't care. How is he with the other kids? Is he a brat? Like, that's what we want to know. Because he's clearly bright. It's the other areas of development that I'm worried about. And every kid is different. You may have a kid that's way further ahead socially, acts like an adult, but you know, can't read. You say, all right, well, I know where we need to work. Okay. So add that into the little equation here of every kid is developing uniquely. Even in adulthood, a person will continue to develop throughout life. I will say this. I'll have people come to me and say, Ben, I was baptized when I was really young, and I feel like I know a lot more now than I did then. And I kind of laugh and say, well, I would hope so. <laughs> like, if you still knew what you knew then, we're doing a really bad job of church, right? You're supposed to be growing throughout life. Now, if a person wants to be baptized again because you know, they have a concern or a doubt or a burden, yeah, let's do that. But I, I, the fact that you've grown since your baptism, not only normal, I would dare say required, okay? It would be a problem if you didn't. So baptism is a marker of some sort of development. The question is, which one? Um, so I started looking at Jewish cultural norms that are traditional. Um, in a traditional Jewish culture, at age 12, uh, a girl becomes a daughter of the commandment, bat mitzvah, bat mitzvah. And then at 13, boys have son of the commandment, a bar, bar mitzvah, which is funny, right? Even in, here's this ancient culture that says, yeah, boys aren't ready yet. <laughs> like, like that girls grow up faster than boys and, that, and that's built into the system 12 for you, 13 for you sorry boys, it's the way it is right? so that, that's ancient traditional um, some reformed Jewish communities practice a confirmation at 16 or 18 because they figure you didn't really mean it when you were a 13 year old boy so they can do it again and then if you read the Old Testament even then you weren't counted as an adult till like 20 when they count the men of war it's guys that are 20 and up Okay. I found this ancient rabbinic text, because I'm a nerd, that describes the stages of life in Jewish culture, and it just cracked me up, and I'd love to share it. Five years of age for Scripture, 10 for Mishnah, 13 for observing commandments, 15 for Talmud, um, 18 for the wedding canopy, 20 for pursuit, 30 for strength, 40 for understanding, 50 for giving counsel, 60 for mature age, 70 for a hoary head, 80 for super-added strength, 90 is the age for bending, 
on 100, Izeth dead, passed away, and ceased from the world. <laughs> Rabbi was blunt. It was hard to hear. But it, it's kind of an interesting, like they're trying to picture, here's what to expect. Five years old for scripture. Five-year-old, like you start learning letters, and you could say, let's spell the name of God. And, and let's, where, did, where did kids learn to read in the ancient world? Well, from religious text, the temple. You know, you could say, okay, put, put a scroll in front of them. Let's start getting these kids to read. And obviously they should read the Bible. Um, Felicia is working with a, that age group. It's like, here's your Bible. Hold on to it, you know, and that's good enough for now. Ten for Mishnah, which is a Hebrew interpretive text. It's like a commentary. So by the time you're at 10, you're able to start asking questions like, hey, how come this or that, right? We're getting a little curious at 10. At 13, see, like at 10, you can ask your questions. They say, we don't actually expect anybody to obey the commandments until they're 13. Uh, they're, they're not old enough to know what they're doing. 15 is Talmud, which is an even more advanced Jewish commentary. Like Now you can really start getting into it and start thinking like an adult. 18, you can get married, but you're probably not an adult until you're 20. Which is kind of funny that we, we assume, well, I'm an adult now, I'm married. You're like, no, you're married, you're still dumb. Uh, when you get to 20. They get married in Bible That's a good question. Celine, do you want to answer? No, actually, I, don't, I don't actually know. Uh, I want to say. I thought they were pretty young. Sometimes young. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I like that 30 for strength, like you reach your competence as a man at 30. How old was Jesus when we think he started his teaching ministry? 30. 30, right, yeah. And then don't give anybody advice until you're 50. <laughs> so, again, kind of interesting. If you were to translate that, you know, yeah, hey, start learning the Bible at 5, get curious at 10, start obeying at 15, get married at 18, independent adult life at 20, competent adult life at 30. All right, I mean, that's, again, that's a traditional picture of... 12 years of marriage is going to be... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're not competent yet till yeah, 30. You can get married at 18. Yeah, and that's again going to vary. Our current culture is pushing all of those numbers further out, for better or worse. Again, not even judging, but marriage is further out. Millennials are waiting longer than ever to get married, and we don't know what Gen Z is going to do. Um, Jesus had a very similar pattern of development in the Book of Luke. So he's an infant, visits the temple. Okay, as an infant and is dedicated to the Lord. And then Luke just says, and then he grew up some. And then he visits the temple again at 12, and he's like discussing the scriptures with the rabbis and stuff. And then it says, and then he grew some more in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And then he picks up again at age 30, and he starts his teaching ministry. So again, it, it kind of there's phases of development um, in, even in the life of Jesus. So when are you an adult today? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Where are you an adult today? Uh, well, hard to say. That was pre mullet. I know, it's pre uh, When is a girl an adult? I think we talked about this in a previous lesson. Um, for a young lady, there are some discrete acts that you say, okay, that kind of is a marker of rite of passage biologically in some way. I, I will never forget the day at camp that a mother came to me at the end of the week and said, I heard my young girl became a woman at camp. And I said, oh, I hope not. <laughs> and then Celine had to explain, no, it was something else. I was like, oh, I'm a boy dad. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's not, All I can think of is what is happening in the dorms. Anyway, so that, that phrase means different things, obviously, right? Um, 
And none of these are necessarily helpful to our discussion, but you wouldn't ignore them. I mean, if, there's, if God built into you biological indicators that, hey, you're growing up, uh, it tells you something. With boys, it's even worse. There's almost nothing. Uh, a boy's voice is not going to change all at once. It's going to happen like over five really awkward years. Um, Kevin East is an interesting author who I don't always agree with, but he, he's the guy who says, a boy becomes a man when an older man tells him that he is one. <laughs> Just like when somebody starts treating you like a man, that's when you are. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, and I, I don't know. It's hard to say. So, which leads us to Ben's rules for baptism talks. And as I say, they'd be more like guidelines than actual rules. First thing I'd tell you when you're talking about baptism, don't confuse curiosity with maturity. I have a lot of parents say, well, they asked, and they really wanted to do it, so I thought we'd better. Well, first time my kid asked about sex, I don't say, oh, well, they really asked, and they insisted. No, I'm the adult. Curiosity is not the same as being old enough to participate in a thing. Okay? Curiosity is normal. Maturity comes after that. Yes, ma'am. Don't do the devil's job for him. Like, don't discourage your kids from baptism. But at the same time, there's a way to kind of pace it and say, is this just, you're curious? I want to answer your question and be helpful and encourage you. At the same time, don't confuse curiosity with maturity. Uh, don't confuse knowing enough with growing enough. Uh, kids, speaking again of my kids, my kids are really bright. And the only tool I have as a minister to evaluate is your child a believer, is to start asking them questions. And there are bright kids who can give right answers from a very young age. Because kids are great at processing information if they choose to. Lucas could name all the trains on the island of Sodor from a very young age, and I'm sure I could get Rowan in here to tell us all about the Paw Patrol pups and give you all the details and the colors and the vehicles and the whole, like the information is there. The mind is working and sorting and categorizing. It just, you know, where are you interested? So if I, you know, nudge my kids real hard, I could get them to memorize some Bible verses and know what to say to the preacher. Um, I, same point I made earlier when I go to my kids' parent-teacher conference. Calvin's, what grade is Calvin in? Is he second? Second, second grade. I'm a great parent. Calvin's in second grade, and he's reading on a, like, almost a fourth grade level, and the teacher's really like wanting to tell us this, and I'm like, yeah, I don't care. Does he talk too much in class? She's like, oh yeah, he does. I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about behavior, because that part is not growing yet. I need to get that done. And same thing, you know, I, I, very young kids can give me answers about baptism if I prompt them, uh, or even about the gospel, or anything well, especially else. especially Oh, if parents are doing what we're supposed to do, talking with them about the Bible. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> Your kids know doing things. Her job, yeah. So they're getting all the information, which is phenomenal and great. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're mature enough. It, it, use the wedding metaphor again. If a child at a certain age could give you all the right answers about why people get married, would that mean they're ready for a lifelong commitment? Not necessarily. Like you'd say, well, let's think about this. Uh, don't confuse fear with obedience. I don't like the what if you were to die tonight thing. Some parents do. I, again, try not to be judgy. It's just fear of loss is a very powerful primal vote motivator. It's surprisingly easy to make someone afraid of something, especially a child. Um, fear is an imperfect motivator. Perfect love casts out fear. Um, I, fear can be part of it. 
mean, at some point, every person, I think, does say, while I'm a sinner, I'm going to be lost. It would be kind of weird if you didn't think that at some point in your life as a Christian. At the same time, I don't want a lifelong commitment to be based on a moment of terror. That's kind of the equivalent of a shotgun wedding. Like, you're going to get married because Dad has a gun, and he says you are. And it's not a bad reason, maybe not the best reason to get married, right? Um, I would hope we could go a little further than that. It worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, don't use fear as a spiritual motivator for children kind of the same point read the gospel sermons in the book of Acts almost none of them make a if you do this you're lost point in the sermon there's two examples that you might say are kind of that but most of them are this is the good news of Jesus Christ you know, and on it goes there isn't they were hard nosed preachers but they weren't what we would call hellfire and brimstone preachers. And if that's what they were doing in that book of Acts, then with my kids, at the very least, they don't need to be terrified, especially because I don't want them to grow up later and be afraid of God, right? The goal is not that Jesus is saving you from his very angry father. Uh, It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, and I I hope kids do get that from us. Um, That said, don't create disinterest by being disinterested. There's an old Jesuit saying, give me the child for the first seven years and I'll give you the man. It's never too too young to start talking and show interest. It just doesn't mean we have to make them adults at seven. See the difference? We can talk about baptism respectfully. Again, I'm I'm excited about our down-front baptistry thing that we've been doing because it lets the kids sit down there at the front, in front of the baptistry, and just be enthusiastic about it. They have no idea what it is. They get to be enthusiastic about it. And I like that. Be enthusiastic about church baptisms. If you have an opportunity to be somewhere where someone's being baptized, be there with your kids and make them sit through it every time. And shout amen when it's over. (laughs) Just be enthusiastic, and it will lead to good conversations. Finally, uh, don't forget that you're the parent. Um, A minor, by definition, is a person under the age of full responsibility. (laughs) Parents are the custodians of a child's maturation, For better or worse, no one will have more influence over your child's early life than you. You're going to be the one setting the pace for these conversations. Um, Parents who suddenly decide their kids are adults and their best friend, like, nah, your kid doesn't need a best friend right now. They have those. They need a parent who can be mature, and that's going to be you.